How many are ready to study the Word of God? I love studying the Word of God. Every time I come back to it, I'm just amazed at the depth of it and the joy that comes from getting into the Word. If you're not doing that all the time, my best exhortation this week is get into the Word every day. It is such a blessing. It is such a joy to study the Word of God. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Julie's um, old college roommate uh, and her kids were visiting us for a couple days uh, over this weekend, and uh, Kim and I got into a discussion on Friday night, just various other things we were talking about. We talked about the spiritual condition of the American church and how um, Christians should, should use our freedom in how we live. And one of the, the points of agreement between us was uh, that the church and Christians in general and I want to say this very carefully because I don't want to be critical in it, but we've gotten very comfortable uh, in, in saying, well, my, my spiritual walk is in progress, or, or I'm a, kind of on a spiritual journey, and I'm kind of, kind of walking and, and kind of growing. And, but there's, there's a sense in that that we have to be very careful because it's easy to overlook as we kind of think that way, and that's really become the, the dominant thinking in the Christian church, especially in America. We have to be very careful that we don't overlook one crucial fact. And the fact is that we have complete victory over sin through Jesus Christ. Now, we have to, we have to never negate, lessen, marginalize, whatever word you want to use. We have to be very cautious that we don't allow a way of thinking into our minds that we have anything other than complete victory. Now, that does not mean we don't still battle temptation, because how many are still battling temptation? I'll raise my hand on that one. Everybody should be raising their hand at that point. It doesn't mean that, that we're living perfectly. It doesn't mean that that we're still not battling because there is a spiritual battle going on. But it does mean that having Christ as our Savior and having Christ as our Lord makes us overcomers. And Paul makes it very clear in the book of Romans that there is now no condemnation, that we don't live under condemnation before if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus is your Savior this morning, God is not looking you and placing condemnation on you. That's what Christ came to relieve. We are not under bondage to sin anymore. Please hear that. You are not under bondage to sin anymore. God has released that and exonerated that forever. How many glad for that truth this morning? We're not, I'm not under the control of sin anymore. So any sin I do is an intentional choice to fall back to my old life because I'm not controlled by it anymore. So as we just sang, there's a power in the believer's life that is extraordinary. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer has control over us because in its place, as it used to infect our nature, in its place now is the indwelling Holy Spirit who frees us and controls us at the same time. So there is a disciplined freedom that should mark the believer's life. There's a freedom that we have not, we're not under the bondage of sin anymore, but there's a discipline that just because we're free doesn't mean we have a right to go back and sin. Because Paul says, should I continue to sin so grace may abound? He says, no, heaven forbid we ever do that. We don't want to take license with sin. Now in the early church, this was debated. 
And in the early church, this was a point of dispute, either by people who were biased by their kind of nationality and religious background, or people who simply rejected of the, the idea that Christ did this work on our behalf. And if you look throughout the New Testament, after the book of Acts, and even in the book of Acts, which I'll say in a couple of minutes, throughout the New Testament, starting in Romans, you will see this tension. There's a, there's a dynamic tension in the New Testament about this very principle. Some of the Romans, you can see in the book of Romans, were judging each other. They were saying that some people's sins were too much, that, that they were too far gone, or that they were still under bondage without any hope of victory through Christ. Then you get to Corinth, and it's just the opposite. There's, a, there's an internal spiritual struggle in Corinth because many people there felt like they could be arrogant even in their salvation, and, and that they could, they could use their freedom as a license to do whatever they wanted. And Paul says, no, 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 you're completely missing the point. Liberty does not give you that kind of freedom if you're becoming a stumbling block to other people spiritually. Then you get to Galatia. And the Jews in Galatia were saying that the Gentiles weren't really saved unless they fulfilled all the rituals of the Jewish law. In other words, they needed to be Gentiles living as Jews. That salvation through Christ wasn't enough. You still had to act like a Jew. In Ephesus, some people were still allowing themselves to be weak and immature in their faith because they were still walking according to their old life rather than walking by the Spirit. In Colossae, people didn't have victory because they were told they weren't complete in Christ. And there were people that were criticizing their spiritual discipline. And on and on it goes. So Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi was a good, strong church. But, but throughout this, there's this dynamic tension of, of the fact that maybe we really don't have that power, that maybe Christ isn't enough. Now, knowing this was going on, because the Spirit obviously did, he uses the writer of Hebrews to clarify this principle to Jewish believers, because the Jewish believers were probably just as confused and full of disagreement as everybody else. Now, the book of Hebrews, which we have not studied enough and we need to study more, the book of Hebrews was written directly to the Jews. It was to verify the power and authority of Jesus Christ centrally. Because the problem for the Jews was many of them didn't trust that Christ was the Messiah. Even to this day, Jews are standing at the wailing wall right now in Jerusalem. They're standing at the wailing wall and they're praying and they're bobbing their heads and they're tucking little pieces of paper into the wall praying for Messiah to come because they don't believe Jesus was Messiah. So the writer of Hebrews goes directly to the Jews and says, I need to tell you that the authority, the power, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone as our Savior. This is who you need to trust once and for all. There's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more law. It's been fulfilled. Now it is Jesus. That's what Hebrews is about. It's the apologetic to the Jews. Romans is the apologetic to the Gentiles. Hebrews is the apologetic to the Jews. And you can understand that the book is very Christ-centered. It establishes Jesus. You can see if you have headings in your, in your Bible, you can see in chapter 5, it establishes Jesus as the final high priest, the one who was both the lamb of redemption 
and the one who serves as the high priest, who's opened up the veil. There's a lot of uh, religious Jewish symbolism here, talking about the temple. He's opened up the veil. He's given us mercy. He's allowed us to enter right into the presence of God directly. But the writer, knowing the Jews' propensity, also has two strong warnings for them. One is in chapter 4. One is in chapter 6. He says, as you understand these truths, as you, as you realize as Jews the awesome grace of God, there are two things I have to warn you about. Number one in chapter 4, he says, don't harden your hearts like your forefathers did. Don't allow temptation to, to weaken you because God will help you and strengthen you. Now, if you know your, your, your Bible history, you know that in the Old Testament, when the Jews were in the wilderness going from, the prom, from Egypt to the Promised Land, that they repeatedly failed. They repeatedly doubted God. They repeatedly rebelled against His leading because their hearts were stubborn. And they were resistant. And they not only, uh, that, that not only kind of stunted their dependence and their faith, but it caused them to commit selfish sins and to, and to bring the discipline of God upon themselves. So when you look at the, the Jews from Egypt to Sinai to, to the wilderness to the promised land, right until Je uh, Joshua 1, right, before, right after uh, Moses gives his final speech, if, if you look at that span, there really is nothing in those 40 years that you could describe as strong. It's constant weakness, constant personal and spiritual inefficiency. So the writer of Hebrews says to the Jewish believer, don't do that. Don't fall back and harden your hearts like your forefathers did. And then second, he says in chapter 6, and this is in the first part, he says, having tasted of God's grace, having experienced what we did, right? What we sang about and raised our hands and said, praise the Lord. And, and we did all those things this morning because why? We've experienced the grace of God. And if you've experienced the grace of God, you know how wonderful it is, right? You know, you know how wonderful that is. So he says, listen, you've tasted it. You, you've seen the grace of God. You've experienced it. Now, knowing that, don't fall back into immaturity. Because the bottom line of doing that is it essentially makes us worthless to God. Think about that concept. Now, this is the danger for every believer. It was especially a danger for the Jews because so many of them who had come to faith in Christ wanted to revert back to Judaism. That was the problem in Galatia. That was the problem in Ephesus. But it even hit the disciples. And if you read Acts 15, you know that there was a huge dispute between the original disciples and the Apostle Paul because the original disciples got pressure from the Jews who said, you know what, Jesus is wonderful and we're glad we're saved, but really the Gentiles need to earn their keep. And they swayed Peter and John and they kind of convinced them, you know, what would it hurt? It, it wouldn't, Gentiles, listen, it wouldn't hurt you, okay, to, to kind of do the rituals of the law because that'll just, I don't know, just kind of just make it look sincere, that kind of That was the debate that was going on at the Jerusalem Council. And Paul actually, I love the Apostle Paul, he gets up in Peter's face. Now, we know Peter's not a slouch, right? 
Peter's not, uh, not a wallflower. What's the right word for that? He, he's not somebody that's just going to cower away. Okay, Paul, thank you. Now, Peter, Peter was the guy who jumped out of the boat. I want to walk on the water. Peter's the guy, I'm going to the cross with you. Peter's the guy who's cutting off the, the servants here. I mean, Peter's, Peter's out there, right? Everybody say Peter was out there. He was out there. So, so the apostle Paul comes up, and he gets right up in Peter's face, right here. And he said, what you're doing is wrong. Peter's like, what are you talking about? He says, you are asking the, the Gentiles to act like Jews. Is Christ sufficient or not? And that was a pivotal point for the church. Because there was this, there was this latent propensity to kind of say, yeah, maybe they should follow the law. And Paul says, uh-uh, you're misunderstanding Christ. Christ is enough. Christ is everything. It's not Christ and, it's Christ only. And he kept the emphasis on Christ and how trusting him now moves us on to maturity. Now all that background, that was, that was necessary for our study. That, that may seem a little negative, but the word is designed to teach us and convict us, right? But the word is also designed to strengthen us and encourage us. So we get to this next part of the passage, what we're going to focus on this morning, Hebrews 6, starting in verse 9. And the writer now is talking to the Jews, and the Spirit of God is talking to us as believers in, in July of 2017 in Wisconsin. And, and both the writer and the Spirit, because they're essentially the same, are communicating that there are high expectations for every believer. If you're taking notes, write that down. There are high expectations for every believer. Someone who has been forgiven by the grace of God, someone who has had their nature transformed by the Spirit of God, somebody who's experienced the goodness of God should not have any thought, any desire, any plan to go back to who they once were. It's only logical, it's only reasonable that we would live joyfully and contentedly and passionately in the new life that we've been given in Christ. And that means it's only logical and only reasonable that we would put off the old self and we would clothe ourselves with righteousness and humility and that that's not a chore. The Christian life is not a chore. The Christian life is not, oh, i got to do this. Oh, i got to serve God. Oh, I've got to put off sin. Oh, I've got to walk in holiness. Oh, I've got to trust God. Oh, I've got to put off the old. Oh, i got to. <laughs> no, it's not that. Come on. Christ didn't die, so we go, okay. <sighs> All right, I'll walk with you. You, you. you push me down enough. I surrender. It's fine. I'll do it. No, come on. That's not the Christian. How many know that's not the Christian walk? Christian walk is living with Jesus, a life that is true. It's happy, it's joyful, it's contented, it's passionate. It's God has forgiven me, God has released me, God has exonerated me, God has erased my sin, and I get to be a child of God. I get to walk with Him. I get to live in holiness. I'm not under the bondage of sin anymore. I get to be like Christ. That's what the Christian walk it's a delight. It's a privilege. 
to be called a child of God. It's a privilege to be called a disciple of Christ. So what is described, we're not going to read these verses, study them later. What's described in verses 1 to 8, and what he describes is continuing to live as a spiritual infant and having to repent over and over because we keep repeating the same sin and falling away in our faith and being spiritually unfruitful. All of that is unthinkable for a true follower of Christ. Remember we talked last week about being a follower of Christ. That's unthinkable. And look at what he says here in verse 9 because he says the hope and expectation for us. Listen now. The hope and expectation for us is far better than that. Read it. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. He's referring back to 1 to 8. Things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now let's explain and understand what that means. I'm going to give you a couple spiritual principles this morning that are, that are fairly basic, but listen, sometimes you got to go back to basics, right? Sometimes you got to go back to those foundations because you get a little up here and we, and we need to get grounded again. So let's get some foundations this morning. Let's get, let's get some strong, basic theology that will help us. All right? First spiritual principle, verse 9. We need to be fully convinced. We need to be fully convinced that spiritual mediocrity and lack of progression is not the way we've been empowered to live. I'll say it again. We need to be fully convinced that spiritual mediocrity and lack of progression is not the way we have been empowered to live. In fact, it's just the opposite. We have complete victory through Christ. We have unhindered access and absolute joy. Fullness of joy comes in the presence of the Lord. We have un unfettered access to the presence of the Lord at any time. We have the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have the unending teaching of the Word of God that we can study every day. We have the undeniable certainty of our faith, and we have an unmistakable calling. Now think about that. Our faith is certain, our doctrine is certain, our power is certain, our access is certain, and we have a calling on our lives where God says, because of all I've done, because of how I changed you, now I want you to go out and live it and talk about it. So if we're satisfied with just being in process, and just going back and forth and up and down and two steps forward and two steps back and three steps forward and four steps back and one step forward and one step back and, and on and on and on and on. If we're content with that, we have not really fully understood the sufficiency of God's grace. We don't really understand and we're not yielded to the power of God. 
because you can't say in one hand, I'm exonerated, I'm freed, I have the power of God, I have the presence of the Spirit, I have access to the presence of God, I, I, am, I am wonderfully and fearfully made and saved. You can't say that on one hand and say, well, I'm kind of just not really moving forward. The, those, those statements are incompatible. We can't say there's power in the blood. We can't say you are mighty to save. We can't say his love breaks the chains that bind us. We can't say that and then live in a way that contradicts it. We can't. Think about the songs that we sang this morning. His, his, the, the chains that bind us now are broken because he's mighty to save, because the power of his blood has cleansed me from sin. But, but I'm going to say to God, I'm not really confident. And, and I, I don't know if I can trust you. And, and sin just is temptation so strong. And I just can't, I can't break from it. I just, I keep having to yield to it. How are we going to defend that to the Lord? You are partakers of salvation of Jesus Christ. You have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. Listen, if you're not saved this morning, if you don't know Christ, now's the time. Because what I'm describing can describe you. Freedom from sin, breaking of the bondage, release into, into a new life that will change you forever confidence in your faith, assurance of salvation, certainty of God's presence, a new nature, a new mind, a new heart, a desire for things that are holy, no longer attracted to the, to the filthiness of sin. That can be you. How do I know that? Because it's me. I know that because 30, 43 years ago, God transformed my life, and I no longer think that way. I now think the way God's created me to think. God didn't create us so that we would stay in sin. God created us in his image so we'd be like him. So you can know that. You may be sitting there going, I don't know who this guy is. Why is he, why is he yelling at me? What's he talking about? I'm telling you, you can be saved. I'm telling you, you can be freed from your sin forever. Now, once that happens, verse 9 says, look at it. It says, we have been given everything that accompanies that salvation. Everything that accompanies sal that salvation. So we must be convinced that there are better things than immaturity and weakness and lack of spiritual fruit. That's number one. Number two, verse 10. The Lord tells us that we can expect awesome blessing from him when we are faithful. The Lord tells us in verse 10 that we can expect awesome blessing from him when we are faithful. He says that the Lord will not forget the work we do. The Lord will not forget when we serve him, when we advance the gospel. He will not forget when we show love toward him. Catch that. When we show love toward him by ministering to others. Now, a couple things here. I won't forget is another way of saying I noticed that and I remember it. I saw that. That didn't escape my notice. You were faithful to me. You showed love to me. You advanced my gospel. I kept a record of that. Listen, we're not going to just let that slide by. I'm taking note of it. I'm writing it down. It's going in your record. Paul Rhodes, 
was faithful to me. Paul Rhodes advanced my word. Paul Rhodes loved somebody when he, when he didn't want to. Paul Rhodes ministered in, on my behalf by doing that. So God says, I'm keeping track. I'm keeping tra- I'm writing it down. I know what your record is, Rhodes. I got a whole file on you. Oh, I got a file on you, pal. I know what's in your file. There's no more sin in my file because that's been cleansed. But there is a record. How's Paul served the Lord? How's Paul loved others? See, there are two things that get the Lord's attention. Two things in particular. Look back at verse 10. He says, the things I pay attention to are serving me and showing love. Now, why those two? Well, it's because they both relate to the first and second greatest commandments. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So correlate those to what he says here. When you love the Lord completely, what are you going to do? You're going to serve him completely. You're going to tell other people, I can't, I can't hold it in. I've got to tell you about the, the, the grace of God that's changed my life. I, I don't even need to think about whether I should do that. It's just going to be natural. It's going to be so gratifying to do that that it won't even seem like work. You know, I think back to the example of Jacob in the, in the book of Genesis who was tricked by his father-in-law. He wanted to marry Rachel because he loved Rachel so much. And Laban says to him, work seven years, and then you can have Rachel as your wife. Well, after seven years, Jacob works. And on the wedding night, she was veiled, and, and they go in to the honeymoon, and it's her sister. And Jacob goes, that's not Rachel. That's Leah. And Laban, the wonderful father-in-law that he was, you think you have a bad father-in-law. He says, work seven more years, and then you can have Rachel. And it says in Scripture that to Jacob, it seemed like just a few days because of his love for her. And I thought, that's what the Christian walk is. It should never seem like work because we love him so much and because we just want to live for him and we just want to show our love and our gratitude to him. It should be so much more true of the Lord that we love him with all our heart and then once we've experienced the grace of God and he's changed us and we, and we love him, now he gives us a love in our heart for other people, even people who don't seem very lovable. And he says, you're going to love them. You're going to love them. And it's going to be a natural response. Listen, the more you and I die to self, the more it creates an attitude of love and selflessness. That's why loving the Lord changes your mindset and changes your mission and changes your marriage and changes your family. Because the more you love the Lord, the more you deny self. And the more you deny self, the more you can love others. And the more you love others, the more they will see the sacrifice and humility in our hearts that breeds from loving God. So all of a sudden, loving your wife, men, is not going to be like, it's going to be absolutely, you're precious to me. All of a sudden, loving your husband, ladies, is not going to be, it's going to be, yes, I love you because I love Jesus. And when I love Jesus, I love everybody else differently. When you're selfish, how many know that when you're selfish in marriage, it doesn't work? Raise your hand. 
right? I want my way. I want to do it my way. I want to be right. I don't care if I'm not right. I'm going to be right because I want to be right. And I want to sit down. I want to do my thing. I don't want to do dishes. I don't want to take out the trash. I don't want to run the errand. I don't want to do your dirty wash. I don't want to do any of it. I'm going to do my thing. That works very well. You will come see me very soon for counseling if that's the case. You'll be called, Pastor, I have a problem with my marriage. First thing I'm going to ask you is, you being selfish? Uh, well, she, nope, I don't want to hear about her. What are you doing? Well, a little bit, and there's your problem. Let's dive into that first. Loving God causes us to love each other. And look at what God says in verse 10. I take note of that. I watch that. When you don't roll your eyes, but you're sacrificial and you're humble and you love when you don't feel like loving, I write that down in your file. I'm taking note of that. And as that happens, when the Lord works in our lives, go to verse 11, there's a huge benefit for us personally and spiritually. Now, we don't serve the Lord to get, but God's gracious to give to us anyway. And in this case, verse 11, look at it. It says that when we live this way, we will realize the full assurance of hope until the end. If you're writing in your Bible, underline that phrase, because I love it. The full assurance of hope. Now, that is not hope that is circumstantially uncertain, like I hope it doesn't rain for our softball game tomorrow night, or, or I hope North Korea doesn't keep shooting missiles at the West Coast. I, I hope that doesn't happen. That kind of hope is just a simple desire. It may be based on some evidence, like I looked at the Weather Channel and a 10% chance of rain, so we're probably going to get the... That's, that's circumstantial hope. There's evidence there, but you cannot be certain until it happens. That is not the type of hope being described in verse 11. The type of hope in verse 11, at the best translation, even the best translation like the NASB, which is what we're using, the English language is, is inadequate in some ways to express the full intent. So listen to how this was written literally, okay? The Spirit says that when we show the same diligence to live as mature, faithful disciples that we will know and experience, quote, the most certain, joyful, and confident expectation, unquote, of God's love and blessing. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope that crazy North Korean dictator doesn't, you know, nuke the West. That, that's, that's circumstantial hope. He says this hope is different. This hope is a certain, joyful, and confident expectation of God's blessing. And he says, notice it, that that confident expectation will last throughout our whole lives until we go to be with the Lord. You and I don't have to live, well, I hope God works, and I hope God helps me, and I hope God answers prayer, and I, and I hope that if I live for the Lord, there's, there, you know, God will bless. No, that, that's not the kind of hope we live in. We live in confident, secure hope that we can expect that God will work and will bless and will honor that if we live that way. Paul talks about it in Romans 5. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through whom we've also in, in, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult, listen now, in the hope of the glory of God. Same word. And not only this, but we exult in tribulations. We know that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about proven character. And proven character brings about, guess what the word is? Hope. And I love the next phrase, Romans 5.5. 5. And hope does not disappoint. Oh, that's good. Somebody say amen. Hope does not disappoint. Why? Here's the next phrase. Because the love of God has been poured out on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. Oh, that's good. I tell you, if you don't, if you don't feel encouraged after that, I have nothing else for you. When we go through tribulation, some of you are. It produces perseverance. we got to stay strong in our faith and not fall back. And when we persevere in our faith, it develops our character. God takes us to a different level of faith and a different level of character. And we become a different person. And when our character is proven, we have hope. And you will never be disappointed by the hope of God. And God says, you won't be disappointed because I'm going to pour out my love and I'm going to use my spirit who's been given to you as a gift. Why would we deserve the spirit? We don't. God gives it as a gift. And he says, I'm going to give you that spirit and he's going to give you hope and confidence and joy. And when you experience the power of his love and the assurance of the spirit, it doesn't matter what you're going through because you have hope and hope does not disappoint. Now, look at the last part, and we'll pray. Look at verse 17 of Hebrews 6. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's us, he wants to show us the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, in other words, he's going to keep his word because it's unchangeable. He has a purpose and a promise that he's given to us, and he can't take it back because he can't lie. That's the meaning. We, who have taken refuge in Christ, now have strong encouragement to take hold of the, tell me what, hope that's set before us. And this hope, verse 19, we have as an anchor of the soul a hope that is both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. The Spirit of God is telling us in verse 17 that God's desire is to show us as heirs of the promise His purpose. And this is so certain that verse, eight, verse 19 says, the Spirit says this hope, this confident expectation of God's work, that should be the anchor to our soul. It should be so sure and so steadfast that it drives us to the presence of the Lord who's opened up the veil so we can go right into the Father. Let me ask you this morning, is your absolute confidence in the Lord the anchor of your soul? Or is there another thing that's serving as the anchor? There are a multitude of alternatives, relationships, work, sex, hobbies, money, alcohol, partying, partying, on and on. But let me tell you something, all of those things will disappoint you and me. 
The only one that is sure, who meets every need and every expectation, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who fulfills us spiritually forever. He is the one who secures us in his love and provision. He is the one who has a perfect purpose for you and me. And he is the one who bless us with peace and joy and confident hope that will never disappoint. So, let's finish. What do we do now? Look at verse 12. Knowing him and living for him and hoping in him drives us to continue to mature. Verse 12 concludes, be imitators instead of being spiritually inactive. The word sluggish there, I looked it up. It means lazy, dull, lethargic, and apathetic. Anybody want their spiritual walk to be described by those words? How's your walk, Paul? Ah, lazy, dull, pretty lethargic. Actually, I'm really pretty apathetic about the whole thing. Don't really care. I don't know. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a thing. Listen, that is always a risk. Falling back, drifting, becoming dull and lazy and apathetic about loving and serving the Lord, be becoming lethargic in our desire, not wanting to serve, not wanting to trust. That, that's all a risk. Why? Because the enemy has launched a full-out strategic assault to get us to live that way. And it will happen if we are not diligent to follow the example, look at the word one more time. We're going to close our Bibles in a minute. Verse 12, if we do not follow after and imitate the example of those who have gone before us, who lived with faith and patience and inherited the promises of God, people like Abraham and Joseph and David and Elijah and Esther and Peter, and notice the words that describe them, faith and and patience. Why faith? Because they trusted with all their hearts and yielded to control to God. And patience because faith requires patience. Faith requires living under the plan of God and trusting the leading of God and trusting the timing of God and trusting that when everything falls apart that God is not unaware but God is working to grade us to a place of greater faith and greater character so that we will have hope that is not disappointed. Listen, the reason anyone trusts in Christ, the reason anyone yields their life to him is because we've looked at all the evidence. We've looked at the evidence of our sin. We've looked at the evidence of our need for salvation. We've looked at all the alternatives, and we have become convinced without a shred of a doubt that God loves us, that Christ died for us, and that our only hope of salvation is through him. That's the only reason anybody gets saved. I looked at my life. I looked at my sin. I know what that means. And I looked at every other option. And the only one that makes any sense is Jesus. So the natural outgrowth of that faith is to be convinced that apathy and mediocrity 
and marginal maturity are not what Christ came to produce in us. And because he desires to show his children the unchanging certainty of his power and his promises, verse 8 says, we now, you and I, listen now, we need to take hold of that hope as an anchor to our soul and that when we do that, we're going to say it one more time, we will never, ever be disappointed. No matter what circumstance you're going through this morning, no matter what problem in your life, your circumstances will be difficult, people will disappoint you, but the certainty of God's love and the steadfastness of his promise gives us full assurance. And I pray that every single person has that hope. If you don't, or if you've fallen back from it and it's not really in your heart, I want to encourage you right now, call on him and ask him to change you and cleanse you and, and, and fill you with the Spirit. We're going to pray in a minute, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to go right to him because Jesus has opened up the access. And I want you to say, God, forgive me. God, cleanse me. God, God, I, wanna, I want Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. And if you have done that, there are better things for you and me. There, there are better ways to live than we're living. There's better faith that we can appropriate. There's better time in the presence of the Lord. There's better understanding of God's promises. There's better joy and better hope and better confidence waiting for us. We've got to take hold of that.